Well, it really is my honor to be here. Other than, did you notice as he was introducing me, it happened last night, there was a picture of a crying baby on the screen. And I wasn't sure if that was intentional or not, but, you know, it just felt so different than what I've experienced here, because you are the most hospitable group. I, I, it's really been impressive. Um, I flew in on Monday because we've had a series of meetings here with my counterparts in different parts of the vineyard. So we had a couple dozen people here um, from probably, I need to count, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 different countries. And so we were staying down at the Holiday Inn Express, and we asked them where to eat, and they said, well, you want to eat at the Big Walnut Grill. You will not be disappointed. So Monday night, we drive down there. It happened to be half-off burger night. Now, that's my kind of place. So we went in there, and it was packed, and so they put us at this table, and they begin to notice these different accents, and so they... Um, the manager came over and she said, we're going to buy you all desserts. And so I had a couple of friends there from Kenya in East Africa. And so the manager said, now don't eat, don't fill up on this food because we're giving you these desserts. And my African friend goes, I'm African. I, I, can, I can eat everything. So he got through his burger in about two bites of that thing with the giant cookie with the ice cream with all the stuff. But we drove back by and I just wanted to see the church because we were meeting here starting Tuesday and we drove around the building and so a couple of South Africans, different part of that continent, were in the car and they go, boy, that building just looks hospitable, makes you want to come in. And you know what? That promise of the outside has been fulfilled. And we've just had a wonderful time, and people have been hospitable. And Danny and Penny, I'm not sure that I can think of anyone that I respect more than them. And Sandy and Jake that does youth came and gave a prophetic word. And the Life Builders served us and, and one of the meals. And it's just, it's just been a wonderful time to be here. And then amazingly the the woman who works in the little room where they serve breakfast at the Holiday Inn um, found out that we were from the vineyard and she attends here now I'm not sure whether Danny paid her to say all that but she came up and she goes I love the vineyard that's my church she goes a friend of mine talked me into visiting another church once but you know what they didn't treat me the same way the vineyard did the vineyards my church I'm never going anywhere else and so it's been just a real joy to be here and, and have a good time. And, and uh, again, the promise of hospitality that so marks this building. I love this building, by the way. I love the oak. I love the look. I love the mountains, the wood. It's like really cool. So we're really glad to be here. And you know what? There's a whole bunch of churches like this around the world that are a part of the Vineyard family. The vineyard began with a handful of churches in Southern California where I live and now has expanded to something that, that really does span the globe. And though we're a small part of God's larger family, our family has grown with, with somewhere around 2,400 vineyard churches around the world. And they really are unique. And so I want to tell you about a couple of them. Actually, you hear a few stories this morning. And uh, some of you that are sharp-eyed may have noticed that as I walked up, there was a bit of extra color in, in my Bible. And it's these three cards. And I carry these with me now. I think it's quite funny. They remind me of being in South Africa last year in August. 
And about a month before we were due to go there, we were going to attend a conference and then have a meeting of, again, the group that I work with that, that lead missions for different parts of the vineyard around the world. Um, we met afterwards, so sort of the reverse of this time. And I get this email asking if I would speak at the Centurion Vineyard in Pretoria. Pretoria is the capital city of South Africa, and that vineyard's the second largest vineyard in South Africa. They have a nice building, but not as nice as you guys. Don't tell them I said that, though. And uh, so as people found out that I was speaking there, people would begin to tell me about an unusual practice that that church had. And at first I wasn't sure if they were pulling my leg, if this was all some kind of joke, but what they told me is they told me about these cards. And in fact, these are the cards. One is green and one is yellow and one is red. And when I got to the church that morning, I noticed that over on my right, their left, that's where the leadership sat, and they all had a set of these cards sitting on their chair. And they explained to me that you get real-life feedback, real-time feedback as the speaker in that church. And so if you're doing a good job, you get a green card. And if you're starting to wander maybe a little bit too far down a rabbit trail perhaps or an off-color joke or, or something questionable, you get a yellow card. And if you totally step over the line, you get the red card. So I'm looking at this and my first thought is I just won't look there. I'll stand and I'll face this way and everyone sitting on this side will get it and I will just ignore that. But I figured that would be a pretty sure red card. I didn't want to have that flash of red out of my peripheral vision. So, so, so I thought about it. And, you know, being American, I take the initiative. And somewhere along the way, I learned that the best defense is a good offense. And so I went over there before the service, and I stole this set of cards. I'm confessing it to you. I grabbed these from someone. I don't know whose they were, but they were sitting there um, unwatched. And I took them, and I got up, and I said, you know, in the United States, we have a rather unusual practice that I've started to implement around the world. Now, I didn't tell them this was the first time I'd done it. And what we've learned is that really the ability of the speaker, the one preaching to do a good job, is not dependent on her or him. It's actually those sitting in the congregation. And if they've prayed adequately that week, if they're praying diligently in the service, then the sermon, that's what makes it go so much better. And so we'd like to give you this morning immediate feedback. And so if you're laughing at the jokes appropriately and there's a sense of life and no one's falling asleep, I said, I'm going to hold up the green card for you. And if I see someone even in the back beginning to nod off or not paying attention or someone wandering around, I'm going to hold up this yellow card. And if I see someone falling asleep, and particularly if I hear a hint of snoring, it's the red card. So I switch that back, and I offer that to you as a thought about what you might want to do, Danny. <laughs> you know, if you see, feel the need for that. So we, we have kind of a wild range of churches. Let me tell you about another one. I was, we were in the southern Philippines, just actually just last month, two, well, May. So two months ago now. And uh, we had been there a year before. And, 
and I'll talk a little bit about it at some point in, in my time this morning, but some years ago I, I, I burnt out. I, I, was, I was working on a very rigorous degree and I was traveling like crazy. And, you know, when you give and give and give, if you don't have something coming in, eventually you, you wear out. I mean, it just it's inevitable. You're, you go empty. And that had happened to me, and I found some new ways to interact with God, and I began to talk about that, and, and a whole lot of people were at a similar place, and so we've begun these gatherings around the world of just gathering leaders together to spend time with Jesus. And so we were doing that in the Philippines, and we had a group of, I don't know, seven or eight couples that, that not are just pastors, but oversee other pastors. And, and of that, I think it was seven couples that were there, that, that gathering, just to, again, to spend several days just spending time in a relationship with Jesus. Two of them just looked utterly exhausted. I mean, they, they, you didn't need to know anything about them to see that they were just fried. And so in asking about what had happened, um, both of them work in, in very poor areas in the southern Philippines, one in a city called Cebu and another one further south called Davao. And in both of the communities that they work, fire had swept through. Now, these are very, the, the population density is very high. It's, it's, it's basically plywood and two-by-four construction, um, so that, and that's all there is. And so when the fire goes through, that there's, it, just, it just goes through. And there's no way to get in there. There's no roads. You can only walk. So there's no way to get firefighting equipment in there. And so thousands of people were displaced. And so they had come to this gathering together to get refreshed, having come out of just, you know, weeks of really diligently working with folks that had literally lost everything. And one of those folks worked with a, a people group that I, I don't want to name because they're a Muslim background group. But they're in Davao, and they're, it's a fascinating group to me. They're sometimes called the, the sea gypsies. And historically, they lived on the water. So they, they didn't come from the island. They don't live up in the mountains. They live on the sea. And so they will tell stories of, of those, that, and some still do. Some are on land. This group is on land. But some of them still live on the sea, and they move between... Um, the island of Sulawesi, the northern part of Indonesia, and the southern Philippines. And so they cycle through there. And, and they ha tell these stories about getting off these boats and walking on land and not getting their land legs. I was in the Navy, and when you get on a ship, you need to get your sea legs. Otherwise, you kind of drift around. And so they have the opposite, getting on land. And so some of them have moved off of the boats and have lived on land, and that's the group that this, um, these folks minister with. And they live on houses that are on stilts out over the ocean. There was no land. They didn't own anything, so they actually built out over the sea. And they are very poor. They, they, they make their living by selling secondhand clothes, which is not a particularly lucrative um, profession anywhere in the world. They have no birth certificates, and when you have no birth certificates, you can't vote, you can't go to school, and if you don't vote and you don't get educated, you have no clout, and so they live a very marginalized and difficult life. In fact, they're having their first high school graduate that anyone knows about this year for the first time in their history, their recorded history. Someone's actually graduating high school. This one, young woman will be the most educated person in this people group. And the way the work started there was an American came from one of the vineyard churches in Nebraska and felt called to the Philippines. And so she went down there and wanted to move into this community. And it's kind of dangerous. 
And so the Filipinos didn't want her to move in by themselves. And the Filipino culture is a very hospitable one. So they said, hey, somebody's got to help this American. We need someone who's going to move in there with her so that she's not alone and by herself in this. So one of the Filipinas, Charlene is her name, she volunteers to move in. She has no sense of calling to this. She just feels an obligation to help this American woman. Well, not too long later, the American woman falls in love, marries, and moves up to Metro Manila and leaves Charlene here alone ministering in this this people group and she's never felt called to do this but she keeps on doing it and nine years later she's still doing it her she's met a guy who was in the merchant marine he gave up a life on the sea which he loved and he talks about it with great love because he loved her more which is quite cool they have three kids and they still live in this community all this this fire has happened and they're just utterly exhausted so we see them a year ago in May And so the time with Jesus is refreshing for them and things are different. We go back six months later in November of last year and she's glowing. Like she's smiling, she's excited, what happened? Well, right after we had been together in May, they had gone back and after nine years of ministry and then the intense months of responding to the needs of people following that fire, and, and seeing very little fruit in terms of people coming to Christ. There were a few people that had gathered in a bit of a small group. Over a hundred folks came to them. And they said, we have seen how you have lived. We have seen how you have served. You are the ones that have cared about us. We want to be on your team. And they converted to Christ. And a whole slew of them were baptized six months ago, seven months ago, in, in December. That's one of those churches. Now, we've talked about a church in South Africa, and we've talked about one in the southern Philippines, and we sit here in central Ohio. And you know what? All of that goes back to one place, one moment. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. And it's from John chapter 20. I want to read verses 19 to to 22, because that's where all of this for them and for us began. And the reason that those churches are planted and the reason this church is planted is because people have responded to what's described in this passage, John chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I read that fairly dispassionately, but I want us to catch as much as we can the level of emotion that must have been evident in that scene that is described there. You see, the disciples are gathered together and they're behind locked doors. It actually uses the plural. They're inside of a door, inside of a door that's locked away because they're cowering in fear that what has happened to Jesus will happen to them. And the last three years for them have been days and weeks and months and years of ups and downs. They had left everything to follow Jesus. They had left their professions, they had left their homes, they had left their families, and they went after Jesus, and it must have been on occasion confusing. We see Jesus rebukes them and challenges them. On other occasions, he says, flesh and blood hasn't shown that to you. That was Jesus. On other occasions, it's like, you guys don't get it at all. 
You're arguing about who's going to be the boss. Don't you see we don't work that way? And so it's up and down and back and forth. And they must have had times of doubt and times of exhilaration and wondering and pondering and thinking about that. But it all culminates as they go into Jerusalem and they, they join the crowds that swelled the city right as Passover's happening. And so as they go up into Jerusalem, the rumor goes throughout the crowd that Jesus is here. He's come down from the north, the Galilee, the north of Israel, down to the south to Jerusalem. And people, as they realize it, that Jesus is here and have heard the stories of him, they respond by taking off their coats, they lay them down before him, they pull off palm fronds, they lay them down before him, they cry Hosanna, Jesus goes along, and at that moment the disciples must have felt, we made the right choice. And then everything changes. And the person that they had loved and the person they followed, the source of their hope, is arrested and he's tortured and he's executed and he's dead and gone. And the one who had really shown them what God looked like and had given them purpose in their life is no more. And they are left confused and deflated and discouraged and aimless and afraid and full of grief and overwhelmed with regret at three years of lost life in following him and there they gather together again behind not just one locked door but two locked doors cowering in the fear that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them and then boom Jesus shows up and he says it's me relax I want you to see that it really is me. He shows the hands in his side. And all of a sudden, fear is replaced with hope. And they are overjoyed and they move from being immobilized and cowering in fear to having hope. And Jesus offers them a future. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He breathes on them and empowers them with the Holy Spirit. He gives them a message of peace and forgiveness and he sends them out. And 2,000 years later, we sit here today and the followers of Jesus are still being sent to the neighborhoods around us and to the nations around us the world and the result is a church that spans the globe and a billion plus people follow Jesus today that's where it started right there in that room in those austere circumstances permeated by a sense of fear until Jesus shows up now what might that passage teach us this morning I would suggest to you three things the first one is the presence of Jesus changes everything. That's all that changed. They're there, they're afraid, they're hiding, they don't want it to happen to them. They're behind multiple locked doors and all of a sudden they move from fear to hope. And it happens in their case in a second. And the only thing that was different is that Jesus was there. And I would suggest to you this morning that Jesus being with us, us being with Jesus, still changes things. Sometimes that dramatically, and sometimes with less drama, 
but nonetheless significantly. Let me illustrate it this way. I, I appreciated the fact that you have the women's seminars coming up this, this summer. And I noticed the verse for, that's the theme for that is a verse that's really been an important verse in my life in the last seven or eight or nine years, which is Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. And I, as I said, I burnt out some years ago and, and have found a new way to, actually old ways that are new to, have been new to me, of following some ancient paths of ensuring that I have as much coming into my life as going out. And that came out of, of burning out. Again, I was traveling like crazy, working on a rigorous academic degree. And I just, I just, I was spent. And I began to find that I needed to spend time with Jesus. I needed to spend time with him. Not just giving, not just traveling, not just talking, but just time with Jesus. And Psalm 46.10 stood out to me, and I began to spend just 20 minutes every morning. I have a, different, I have a variety of devotional patterns in my life, depending on whether I'm home or traveling. But the one thing that's constant is I never skip that 20 minutes. And sometimes that 20 minutes seems like 200 minutes, and sometimes it seems like 2,000 minutes. But that's become very important to me. And I told you about how we gather leaders together, and the first time we did it, we were in Kathmandu, Nepal. And the vineyard church there in Kathmandu is an old carpet factory, and so it's kind of got a... a you know, some, some three-story buildings that people live in on one side and some other small buildings and kind of an auditorium, not, not nearly this large. And we were sitting there, and we gathered the leaders, and so we were sent out with just a passage of Scripture to just spend time with this passage and just read it slowly and what is God saying to you. And it, it was a passage that is really familiar to me and maybe to you, and it's from Matthew 11. And Jesus talks about my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me read it for you from the message. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with the version, the message. But you know, sometimes I really love it and sometimes I'm like, oh, gosh, that's, oh, that's not how I would say it. But this pace, I really like it. So listen to this. It sounds a little different, but you, you'll recognize it if you're familiar with that passage. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So I'm sitting there in the dark. They didn't have the lights on. They have pews, homemade pews in this church. And I'm sitting there. I'm leaning against the wall. My legs are out on the pew. Probably shouldn't have been, but that's how I was sitting. And I'm reading this passage. And I wouldn't go so far to say as I thought God lied. I just, that, I can't, that doesn't come out of my mouth or up into my head. But it came as close as I could get to that. Because I read that verse and I thought, that is not my experience. The burden I carry is heavy, and the yoke of responsibility that I bear is great. And why is it that I feel this and I read that? And so I'm sitting there in the dark of that auditorium going back and forth with God and just wrestling about this and struggling and seeing the gap and wondering why it is and verging on being disappointed with him, angry at him, and suddenly it occurs to me that the biggest weight that I feel is the weight of worry and anxiety for the people that I'm involved with. 
I, I oversee the vineyard work in, in 67 countries. And there's always something going on. There's always a problem. There's always a crisis. There's always a challenge. There's always something difficult. And these are not just folks that are dots on a map. Noel Isaac, who leads the Vineyard Church in Kathmandu, and I know you guys gave generously to that work there in the aftermath of the earthquake, and I think that is a wonderful thing. I've lived in his house many times. I know his kids. I know his family. They are my friends. And so when that happens, I don't just read about it on the news. Now, I don't know anyone that died in the earthquakes in Kathmandu, but I have friends that lost their homes. I've been in those churches. We had seven churches that were destroyed, vineyard churches in, in Nepal. Those are my friends. And I carry the weight of that. And I thought, God, how do I have a compassionate heart and not feel that? To be callous and apathetic, that's not the answer. But the weight of that was wearing down on me. And I'm going back and forth with God about this, and all of a sudden it springs on me that every single thing that I worried the most about that kept me awake at night, there was nothing I could do about it. No decision I could make, no phone call I could make, no check we could cut, no trip I could take. Nothing that I could do would change that situation. And then I remember the words of Jesus about worry. And I'm like, God, what do I do? And so it's time for us to regather again. And I don't lead those meetings. I participate in them. And so the guy leading it goes, what did God say to you as you spent time just listening? And we spent a long time just in silence with that passage, just going back and forth with God. And so everybody shared, and I did. And I said, you know, I realize that everything I worry about, I have no control over. And the guy who's leading it looks at me, and he makes this really helpful statement. Well, that sounds like something you ought to think about. Well, golly darn, that helped. Like that like solved it all. I mean, I felt the weight was gone and it was just amazingly relieved and it was all worth it, you know? And the problem is to say, you know, I mean, worry's one of those things. You can't just push it off by mental discipline. I'm not gonna think about these things. It's like if I say don't think about monkeys, you're all thinking about monkeys. <laughs> Even though you hadn't thought about monkeys for months. And so the thought of just don't worry is not the answer. And so I thought, God, this is wonderful revelation, but what do I do with this? And I had started that practice of 20 minutes every morning. And I just sit down and I'm quiet and I say, God, this is your time. I'm just taking this time. I don't know quite how to do this, but be still and know that I am God. I want that to be reality. You know, it was a few months after that meeting in Kathmandu, I realized I was sleeping through the night every night. And it's been that way for the last seven or eight years. I have very few sleepless nights, and I used to have a lot. And in a way that I cannot explain, but I am convinced there is cause and effect, is that in spending that time with Jesus, he rearranged the furniture of my heart and took off of me the load that I had taken on that I was never intended to carry. And he did for me what I could not do for myself. And the only thing that made the difference was just simply spending time with Jesus every day. 
Now, we can do that in a whole lot of ways, and that's not my topic this morning. But spending time with Jesus changes things. And he does inside of us, and he lifts off of us, and he reworks things that we cannot change on our own. But when we spend time with him, just like those disciples, when he appears in the room, things change. Number two, this passage reminds us that we are a sent people. And that we are not the ones that initiate mission in the world. This is a very missional church. You're involved in Brazil and you do things in the community. It it is really a delight to be here. Those things are not, however, initiated by people. They're initiated by God and we join what God is doing. Now that may sound like just a semantical difference. Oh, you're just playing with language. But believe me, it is not. It is totally different to say, I'm going to initiate something and ask God's blessing on it versus I'm looking around and I'm saying, what is God doing? And this passage reminds us that we go at Jesus' command and with his power. He gives us both power and authority, and both of those are important. Now let me illustrate it this way. I had been in Russia. Russia is not one of my favorite countries to travel in, I have to say. And so I've been traveling around Russia for, for three weeks. And I, I was ready to go home. And getting out of Russia is a whole story in itself, but I don't have time for that. And, and so I'd gotten to Stockholm. And I'm on a plane. I'm flying from Stockholm, Sweden, to London Heathrow Airport. And from there, I'm going to fly home. And I was glad to be out of Russia because it's always a little chaotic. And there's just kind of an oppressive feel in that country for me anyway. And I'm on this plane, and it's a 737, and so it's got three seats on this side and three seats on this side of the aisle down the middle. And I don't know how they figure out where they seat people. Like if I were in charge of seating people on the airplane and I didn't have a full plane, like I'd sit someone here and set someone here and leave that middle section open so that you like can spread out because I'm like a big person. And so I think about that, but they don't do that. They'll like stick three people in the row next to each other and leave the row across the aisle empty. And that's what they did on that flight. And I'm looking across that aisle at that other row and here I am jammed with two other people next to me and I'm looking at that rest of that row across the aisle and it's empty. And lust begins to rise in my heart for one of those seats around which there is nobody else. And boy, do I want one of those. Like I can see myself stretching my legs out, leaning back, having like room, not feeling crushed in. But you know what? At those days, I was a neophyte flyer. I did not have the elite status I have today. And so I thought I wouldn't, now today I would just simply move over there. But in those days, I thought, you know, I really ought to ask permission of the flight attendant. And she was from London, had that, that posh British accent, you know, the one that makes you feel really dumb when you hear it, like, like they're really smart because they talk that way. She had one of those. And so I wave her down and I said to her, can I, I you know, I'm, I'm building my case. You can see I'm not a small person. I'm really tall. There's that row over there. It's all empty, you know, and so no one's sitting there and I'm kind of squished here and my seatmates would have more room, you know, and I said to her, can I move from this seat over to that seat? And she looks at me and she puts her hands on her hips. Actually, I don't know if she did that, but it sure seemed like it. And she cocks her head and she looks at me and she says in that posh British accent, 
I don't know if you can, but you may. <laughs> Slap down right there. And to compound that, flooding back into my mind comes my experience in Mrs. Perkins' fourth grade class. Because you see, in fourth grade, my family moved from one city to another city in the middle of the year. And you know how hard it is when you're the new kid coming in in the middle of the year. And on top of that, in spite of what you see up here, I really am an introvert. And I remember going into Mrs. Perkins' class, and, and being an introvert, I can kind of sit back and observe, and I notice things, and that's why I love the detail of your facility. And so I noticed that there's a Folgers coffee can sitting, a big one, like the, the gallon or whatever size that is, the big size, sitting on someone's desk. And I thought, man, that like takes up a lot of that school desk. I wonder what they have in there, like they stick their pencils or what the deal is, you know, but it's like this big old can on their desk. Like, gosh, I'm glad I don't have one of those. And so I'm there kind of watching, and then innocently, I raise my hand and I say, Mrs. Perkins, can I go sharpen my pencil? And a hush goes over the room and that can that had been sitting on some other student's desk was unceremonious or ceremoniously really handed across the room and landed on my desk because I had not used the proper English and said may instead of can. Now some of you are wondering what the heck is he talking about? And the difference is this. Can is a question of capacity. Do, so when I said to that flight attendant, can I move from this chair across those 30 inches of aisle space to that seat on the plane, I was actually asking, do I have the power to propel this body across that 30 inches to sit in that other seat? And what I really needed to say was, may I, because may is asking permission to be able to do that. Now, may and can are both really important. Because if I have the permission, but I lack the capacity, that's frustrating. And if I have the capacity, but I lack the permission, that's frustrating. And Jesus says to us in this passage, you may and you can in fact, more than you may, you are sent. It's not that you just have permission. As the Father sent me, I send you. It's not at our initiative. It's not us that start it. It's God that does it. And he sends women and he sends men and he's been doing it for 2,000 years. And that's why the name of Jesus spans the globe. But he doesn't just send us out, he breathes on them and empowers them so that they can do it and so they don't feel the frustration, we may and we can. The third thing that I see in this passage 
is that God gives to us the message of forgiveness and peace in all its dimensions. Now, peace in English has a very limited set of parameters. And so we talk about a peaceful gathering is one that's not violent. Nations that are at peace are not destroying each other. The UN peacekeeping force ensures that the parties are not clashing. And so peace for us tends to be something that describes motionless and inactivity. That's not the biblical view of peace. And I'm running out of time here, so I'm just going to give you the passage. But in Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 25, it describes the covenant of peace that God makes with Israel. And if you read that through, you realize that that covenant of peace includes meeting their every need. And so peace in the biblical sense has to do with completeness and soundness and wholeness and prosperity and well-being and harmony and goodness. And so peace exists when everything is right, all is as it should be, nothing is missing. Let me illustrate it this way. I was up out of Kathmandu. Kathmandu is in a valley. You go up into the Himalayan mountains and we're up visiting a vineyard church there. And to get there, you have to drive for two days in a four-wheel drive vehicle out of Kathmandu, which is getting there in itself is a challenge. And so we're two days out, and that's where you start walking. And this is up out of the foothills. This is in the Himalayan mountains. And so every step you're taking, you're basically taking a step of elevation gain. It's steep. And so we go up there and we spend a day walking and we get to the first church that we're visiting and I had not drank enough so I'm dehydrated and they're giving us food and I, can, I don't have any saliva so I got to get some fluids in me and so we're there and we're setting up the tent and out comes walking the, the, the pastor of the church there and, and the village elders. And they, that church was planted by Noel Isaacs that I mentioned already, the pastor of the Kathmandu Vineyard, and David Roos, a name you may know. I don't think we sang any of his songs, but he writes a lot of songs. He's now the leader of the vineyard in Canada. And they had hiked up there, and they, for the first time that village, heard the name of Jesus. They prayed for people. A bunch of things happened. And now about a third of that village has come to Christ. And there's a church there, and so the, the, head, the elder, the head of the village, is also the pastor of the church. So he comes walking out, and I'll never forget, he walks up and he sees me, and he looks down, and he looks up, and he looks down. And I'm pretty sure I was like the biggest person that he had ever seen. And I'm wondering what's going to happen. He just sits there and he kind of looks up and down. And you feel a little on the spot at that point. Like, like I'm a little bit on display. And then all of a sudden he walks over and he lifts up my left arm. And he stands underneath my arm and starts to laugh. And for the next three days that we're in this village, wherever I went, some people would walk up to me, lift up my right or left arm, stand underneath my arm and laugh. And so we're sitting there, and we got our tent set up, and we're starting to have a conversation through an interpreter, Noel is translating. And so I asked this question. I said, how has the gospel changed your village? And again, I will never forget it. He looks at me, and he says, you know, before Jesus, we used to beat our wives, and now we don't. That's pretty good. That was meant to be a bit ironic. I think that's really good, by the way, just so you know. You know, I care about that. And then they said to me, and you know what? Jesus gives us for free what we used to have to pay for. And that part of the world is, Nepal was a Hindu kingdom for a long time, but the dominant religion in those mountains is not Hinduism, it's Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. And there is a dark side to that. In that part of the world, there's all kinds of demonic stuff that happens. And I have some amazing stories, which I will not share, but it, it really dominates their lives. 
And these people live up so high in altitude. This is about 12,000 feet in elevation, this particular village. And it's so high they can't grow rice. So they grow potatoes and they trade the potatoes for rice. And so it's all a barter system. And hard currency is something they have very little of. But what they had, they had to give to the Buddhist monks in order to buy amulets to protect themselves from the demonic forces. And when he said Jesus gives us for free what we used to have to pay for, that's what he was referring to. And so not only did it change things relationally, it changed things spiritually. And it changed things economically. And the little bit of cash that that village has, they're now able to use for other things. It changed that village. That's peace. And so we bring that message. That's not just a little slice, and it certainly is not inactivity and motionlessness. It is in reality something that changes a culture, that changes a society, that changes a part of the world. And that's what God has invested in us. And so it is in no way a surprise when this passage talks twice where Jesus uses that word peace. Now let me give you one last illustration as we wind down. God still sends us out that way. I was in South Africa some years ago, and while we were there after the conference that we'd been a part of, we did kind of a tour of some places. We went to Soweto, and you may know that name. It's a township there, and it's a very large township. And during the apartheid era, that was one of the places that the residents of that township pushed back strongly against the apartheid regime. And so they they would... um, do things to protest that and oftentimes their protests were met by violence and so on more than one occasion there was shooting that happened and they would run and one of the places they ran was to in an effort to get away from those shooting at them was to a church Regina Mundi which is a Catholic church inside of Soweto is built in 1964 and you visit there today and you can still see in the stained glass the bullet holes. They've left them there to remind themselves of their history. And it's clearly shots coming in from the outside, not coming in from the outside out. It's from the outside in. And you see those, the, the holes, the bullet holes in the glass still today. And that, then when you walk out into the lobby, there's a statue of Jesus. And Jesus is wearing his gown, and, and, and then you look, and the thing that you notice is that in that statue of Jesus, he has no hands. And I'm like, that's interesting. And, and Catholic churches have a lot of symbolism in them more than ours, which tend to be more utilitarian. I thought, I wonder if that has meaning. And so I asked about it. I just, I noticed it. I'm observant. I couldn't help myself. And I, I looked, and I said, how come Jesus has no hands? And this is the story they told me, 1976. People had run into the church. They were being shot at by those that were in hot pursuit after them. And one of those shots shot off one of the hands of the statue of Jesus. So then they have a challenge. What are they going to do? And so their first thought is, you know, we'll craft another hand out of stone or cement or whatever that was. I guess super glue it back on. I don't know. And then they thought about it, and they decided to make another decision. And they said, rather than putting the other hand back on, we'll cut off the other hand. And the reason is this, is because every time as we people walk out of the lobby and go past that statue, they want everyone to be reminded that we are the hands of Jesus in this world today. Jesus has no hands but ours. And so as we wind down our time here, that's what we need to remember. 
We are Jesus' hands today. And we are sent by him, and we are authorized by him, and we are commissioned by him, and we are empowered by him. And we go out today not to do our own thing, but to join with the mission of a God who is at work in this world and goes to extraordinary links that include unexpected missionaries like the young woman in the Philippines and people just like us because he cares about a world that needs to know him. That's what our commission is in the neighborhood in which we live and in the nations around the world. And I'd like to end my part this morning by praying a prayer. And so if you'd stand, I'd appreciate that. This is a prayer that's attributed to a man named Francis of Assisi. You may know that name. And I'd like to pray it over us this morning. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, let us bring pardon. Where there is doubt, let us have faith. Where there is despair, let us show hope. Where there is darkness, let us be light. And where there is sadness, let us have joy. O Lord, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For, Father, we recognize that it is in giving that we receive, that it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and that it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God, let us be your hands in this world. This afternoon and tonight and Monday and Tuesday and throughout the week. Help us to be that. Let us know that we are sent and we are empowered. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in listening to, uh, to Mark and, and just reflecting on what he had to say last night and again this morning, you know, one of the tensions that I think so many of us recognize is that I think when you hear about the, the call and, and permission and capacity we have to, to be Jesus' hands, to, to really bring a message that's been entrusted to us, to our neighbors and our families and friends and co-workers. There's something that calls out to us, but then if you're like me, you also are keenly aware of the, the tension, and that is our lives become so filled and so occupied, so cluttered with other things, good things. It's not not riding around in our yachts or jet setting in a Lear jet, but we we have, you know, we're caring for parents, we're taking care of children, we're working and trying to uh, make a living. There's just so many things that that occupy our time, our energies, our our uh, attention, and there's this this ongoing struggle. Can you, can you relate to that? Any of you recognizing you, know, you want to be be used, you want to be available, you want to be sensitive to the Lord in in being His hands, His heart, His His mouth to others, but you recognize how how occupied our our we our lives are, and I, I believe that's. That's something that is especially true in our culture. And, and one of the things that, that touched me last night, and again this morning when Mark was talking about those 20 minutes that he spends, 
not being able to even say, here's what God said to me, here's what God did, but just seeing the results of inviting that presence of Christ and what he is able to do as we, as we invite his presence. And I believe God wants to, this morning, and just by, as a benediction today, what I believe what God wants to do is send us out with, a, with this, that we would be a people who would make, make room, invite Jesus to come, put some time aside, whether it's uh, 20 minutes, whether it's your drive to work, but put some time aside where you would just say, Jesus, I, I just want to wait before you and see if God doesn't sort through, open doors up, bring that capacity and that 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 willingness, that uh, invitation together. So what I want to do is is just ask you to, to hold your hands out. If you experience that tension in your lives, just hold your hands out, and I'm going to pray that Jesus would draw near to us, that we would find those, those moments throughout the day, that time in the morning or in the evening where we can invite Jesus beyond even the, the something practical or cognitive that he does, but just begin to sort our lives in such a way that we could really be used by him. Does that make sense? Let's just reach our hands out before the Lord, make ourselves available to him. Father, we invite you to come. You've given us both permission, you've given us your spirit and the capacity to be used by you, so, Lord, we, we present ourselves to you as individuals. We present ourselves to you as a, as a church family. Come, Lord, and, and show us how you will make opportunities. You will set up divine appointments. You will sort our days. You will free our energies that, that we can just see those, those simple opportunities laid before us to be your hands, to be your heart, to be your mouth. Jesus, we, we want to be your people. We want to be used. We want to cooperate and participate in your mission. And we just invite you to supernaturally do what in the in the natural scheme of things seems so hard. Come, Lord, just fling us out like seeds into a, a, a dry ground that you can bear that fruit by your power. Here we are, Jesus, available to you. And all of God's people said, Amen.